0: This is when Prash got filmed my my mum and me about raising kids. <laughs> Forgot about that. Come on, man. So that all worked fine? Yeah. Yeah, just... Is that black? Oh, I guess so, yeah. Let's just check. It might be okay because it's within red, but... It should be okay because it's within red. I could probably have changed that. But... Oh, I see. We don't need to. We don't need to. As in, I already altered the image in Photoshop to um, make it fit that space, so it wouldn't have been that hard to... Um... Oh, no. it going to... Yeah, it's keyed out. It did? Yeah, because the top of the screen, they got top of doing it as well. I mean, whether it looks bad or not is another question, because it's just down there, it's just... um. Where's the key to that? So, can you see it there? See how the cajon goes in like that? And see, you can, you're seeing through there into the guitar stand and the. So, what would normally. Oh, that, that that wood? little black bit. Yeah, I didn't even realize that was that dark. This one I should have realized, but yeah. So, they've both become. Uh, yeah, yeah. Although that's not bad. No, I know. You wouldn't even really notice it. You wouldn't think about it. You would just think, particularly because the whole image is scratchy, sort of look. Yeah. The top That one happens to look a little bit because of the, the cajon being right into it. We could move the cajon a little bit to the left so it's covered by the lectin mm-hmm. and, um, Or... The other option is change the background to... highlight green and ah, that key that fun. out. Yeah, that yeah that you've got cool. green there too. Yeah, I just don't know what's on the other slides. That's got bluey green. That's got blue and green. Blue. Yeah, I think it's probably okay. Mm. It kind of ni- looks nice and yeah. I don't think grungy. People, yeah, I don't think people are going to pay too much attention to it uh just is there any text black no i mean i've made sure i haven't put any text black that's good. okay that's good oh, That's just one slide i yeah. know oh, it is too
1: I'd like to start by reading a verse from from a modern hymn, Beloved by Millions. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Obviously, that's John Lennon's famous song Imagine, and it's it's facetious to call it a hymn, but Plenty of people do treat it that way, don't they? With a real reverence. And I wonder if plenty of people revere the song so much because they really do imagine just what John Lennon imagines. Not just a reality where there is generosity and peace as Lennon sings about elsewhere in his song. But a reality where all there really is, is the here and now. And there are no ultimate consequences for the way we live our lives. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel the same way about the song because you you imagine, you find that appealing. If that were the reality. Well, the parable before us, it imagines a different reality, doesn't it? A reality where, whether we like it or not, what we do now really does echo in eternity. And Jesus told this parable in part to warn his audience about the the folly of living for today, as Lennon puts it, but also to encourage us, to encourage us that to all our big concerns, the sort of concerns that Lennon sang about in his song, about, about peace and about poverty and about justice, to all those concerns, God has answers. Answers that make sense of reality now and that give us clarity and, most importantly, hope about the reality to come. So why don't we pray as we prepare to look at this parable. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have in your kindness revealed to us. We thank you for Jesus, his revelation and his teaching. Help us to consider what it is you need us to hear, so that we may respond in faith and have the hope of eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen. The parable starts uh, with Jesus introducing us to two men. A rich man with a great life and a poor man with a terrible life. Everything Jesus describes about the rich man tells us that he is obscenely wealthy. How he dresses, where he lives, what he eats. Then there's Lazarus. Poor man. Complete opposite. A cripple, probably, because he'd left at the gate. Covered in sores. Starving. Daily, just longing just for scraps from the rich man's overflowing table. But they never come. All that comes are the street dogs to lick his sores. Obscene wealth. Abject poverty. A rich man with a great life. A poor man with a terrible life. Nothing they experience is the same. Until one moment. The one thing they have in common. Death comes to both of them. And then, then we see a poor man with a great afterlife and a rich man with a terrible afterlife. Lazarus, Jesus tells us, he's taken away to eternal comfort in the presence of God's representative, Abraham. The rich man finds himself in torment, in Hades. And this might raise a question in your mind because you may have picked up that there's nothing that's communicated to us about the faithfulness or the godliness of Lazarus. Has he ended up by Abraham's side simply by virtue of being poor? Well, we're not given any explicit information except for one detail, his name. This is unique amongst all the parables that Jesus told, that we have recorded. This is the only parable in which he gives a character a name. And the name he gives him is Lazarus. And Lazarus means God helps. And so Jesus seems to be implying strongly that this is a character whose ultimate dependence is in God. And he seems to be implying the opposite about the rich man. That his dependence was ultimately in himself and all that he had, all that he could fund his present, and his future. And then Jesus depicts in verse 23 this afterlife scenario where heaven and Hades are somehow visible to one another. And in verse 24, you know, we see the, the rich man cut off from the goodness of God. He calls out for some relief from the other side. Just momentary relief. But it can't be. Abraham replies in verse 25, Son, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to here. It's a sympathetic answer. He calls him son. But it's a hard truth. The scales have been balanced. And your situation is unchangeable. And so realising this, the rich man, he, he turns his attention to his still alive siblings. Send Lazarus to them, my five brothers, so that they may repent and, and avoid this place. That again, Abraham disappoints him, doesn't he? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. That is... Whatever they need to know about God, who He is, how to relate to Him, how He expects them to live, they can find that out from what God has already revealed to them in His Word. No replies of the That's not enough. They need something dramatic. They need a testimony from beyond the grave. That'll make them take notice. No, it won't, says Abraham. Verse 31. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And so the parable ends with the rich man stuck where he is forever. And we never learn what becomes of his five brothers, but we can imagine. It's a striking and an enigmatic story. It's, it's grounded in reality and yet fantastical and stylized at the same time. What is it we're to understand? What is it that Jesus wants his audience, the audience at the time, and the audience throughout all time, to understand? What are we to learn from this? I think there are many things, probably. But we'll just focus on three things. Three things. The first is that heaven is necessary, and so is hell. Heaven is necessary, and so is hell. The precise nature of the afterlife isn't really the focus of this parable. It's not like someone came to Jesus and said, tell us exactly what heaven is going to be like and hell is going to be like. It's a stylized retelling for the purposes of moving his narrative forward. But what we are supposed to understand is that there certainly is an afterlife. It will be every bit as real and tangible as this, and it will be spent either with God or without God. And those are two very different experiences. The point Jesus makes is that there is no such thing as a consequence free life. Because the Bible tells us that not only is God a God of love, He's also a God of justice. And, you know, we intuitively know this in the sense that we are made in God's image. And so as we experience injustice in this world, big injustices, small injustices, daily injustices, it's no wonder. That we, we desire to see justice done. And we feel robbed when it's not done. We're wired that way. You may recall in 2017, a man named Stephen Paddock opened fire on a concert in Las Vegas, killing 58 people before turning the gun on himself. It was a desperate tragedy. It was a terrible injustice. But one of the most inexplicable things about it, was Paddock himself. He had no past trauma. He was not driven by ideology. He had no diagnosed mental health issues. By all accounts, Paddock lived a comfortable and good life. And so when he killed 58 people and then tapped out by killing himself, never to face the justice of this world, we're left to ask, where is the justice in that? Where is the justice in that? In fact, a Western Australian pastor named Stephen McAlpine, he reflected at the time on that very question in a piece titled The Pointlessness of Vegas is its Point. He writes, We can't face the awful fact that Paddock got away with it. Plenty of money, no real problems, no real concerns, nothing in his past to haunt him, nothing in his future to worry him, except for the oblivion of death. And if that didn't worry him, and without a God to judge your actions, why would it? Then Paddock got away with it. See, Paddock's worldview fundamentally was nihilistic. The belief that there is nothing after death. That there are no ultimate consequences for the way we live our lives. And if that is true, then what McAlpine is saying is that Paddock truly did get away with it. He didn't suffer in this life up to the point that he took his own. And as for belief in heaven and hell, well, that's just opium for the masses. It's a psychological crutch, a neat escape from facing the tough realities, the tough truths of existence. But is that the true neat escape? In his book, The Discreet Charm of Nihilism, the poet, Ceslaw Milos, He once made the point that if humans are looking for comfort, it's not heaven and hell that provide the neat escape from the the hard truths of existence. It's actually nihilism. He writes, The new opium for the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, our greed, our cowardice and our murders, we are not going to be judged. I can see the solace in that. But Jesus' point is, whether we expect it or not, whether we live like it or not, there is no such thing as a consequence-free existence. Injustice of all kinds. We can imagine it away. We can imagine that away. But injustices of all kinds will not go unnoticed. And they will not go unjudged. God is in the business of balancing the scales. And deep down, we desire just such a balancing of the scales. And Jesus says, heaven and hell are a very real part of that. And so that's a hard truth that Jesus delivers here. But like the banquet parable, where there was also the hard truth, where those who rejected the invitation were shut out forever, there is also incredible hope here for the Lazaruses of our community, of our world for anyone who experiences injustice and craves for it to be righted. In fact, for those whose hope is in God, we have solace, not in the lack of God's judgment, but in the knowledge that God's judgment has been enacted at the cross on Jesus in our place. And so if you trust Jesus, when, like the rich man and Lazarus, your life here comes to an end, then, when it comes to standing before God, no one can say, no tongue can say to you, depart from his presence. Why not? Because God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon you. That's such a necessary hope. And the justice of hell is the other part of that necessity. That's the first thing I think that Jesus wants us to understand here. The second thing is that money is a problem. Money is a problem, isn't it? It might not look at, at first glance, but this parable is partly in the response to a comment. A bit earlier in the chapter, in, chapter, in verse 13 and 14, It's in response to the Pharisees scoffing at a comment that Jesus makes when he's teaching about money and he says people can't serve both money and God. And they scoff at him. This is part of that response. Because in that discussion, Jesus describes money as a master, as something which has power over us and which we tend to devote ourselves to. And... Jesus says that the the spiritual power of money is to make us deaf to God and that in turn makes us blind to the needs of others. The word translated in the parable lavish to describe the rich man's life, it literally means great merriment. The rich man was happy, always. A disposition unspoiled by the presence of some pitiful beggar at his gates. It's not like the rich man didn't know Lazarus, didn't see him. He knows his name. He's aware of him. But his wealth and his comfortable daily life had blinded him to Lazarus' needs. Likely because it had already made him deaf to God. Blinded him to the need that he had to be dependent on all that his Creator had given him. And so... The rich man, he's not condemned because of his wealth. But his wealth is his undoing. It is his undoing. And I think a challenge for us is, will our wealth be our undoing? Now, does this mean that we have to go out and do every possible charitable deed that lies before us? No. And nor do our charitable deeds earn our salvation. That's not the message of this parable at all. But they do exhibit it. They do exhibit it. They are a reliable indicator of what fills our hearts. And a heart that truly loves God. The God who, spiritually and in most of our cases materially, has blessed us with such riches. A heart that loves God will be filled with compassion for others, especially those worse off than ourselves. How can it not be? And if that's not something that you can say characterises your attitude towards wealth and towards the needs of others, then it's very likely that, like the rich man of the parable, money is a problem for you. It made him deaf to God, blind to the needs of others, and the consequences were devastating. Please don't let that be your undoing. And the third thing that Jesus wants us to understand here is that the gospel is enough. The gospel, God's message of his salvation, that's enough. You may have heard of a clarion before, a type of trumpet. Historically, it was used in a call to arms, in a call to battle, and then often used within battles to send signals and to have communications and so the trumpet blast had to be loud, had to be clear, so it could be heard and responded to. And so over the years, the term has developed. It's clarion call. A loud and clear and strong emotional appeal to people to do something. The rich man says to Abraham, my brothers need a clarion call, a testimony from a dead man. Abraham says, your brothers have a clarion. Testimony from God Himself, Moses and the prophets. In His mercy, God had chosen the Jewish people and revealed Himself in a way that they could understand and grasp in His Word. But then He went even further than that. He provided an even fuller revelation, an even fuller testimony of Himself. And not just in a word that we can grasp and understand. In a person that we can get to know. The person delivering this very parable. The hardness of heart. It's an incredible thing. I mean, gee Abraham's denial of the rich man's request in this parable. It's, it's a rebuke. It's Jesus' way of rebuking the Pharisees in particular and their attitude to God's inspired scripture, which they profess to value so much. And their attitude to Jesus himself. The one to whom Moses and the prophets kept pointing. The word of God himself in the flesh. They scoffed at him. And so the hardness of heart that Jesus depicts in this parable is the same hardness of heart that saw Jesus nailed to a cross. And saw people heckle him. Come down. Provide us with one more miraculous sign and then we'll believe. He healed countless thousands. Did incredible miracles. Taught about God in ways that they'd never heard before. What more signs did they made? A testimony from a dead man? He provided them that as well. Didn't he? Jesus rises from the dead. Testifying to the truth of his identity and his message. And what's their response? Denial. Deceit. Rejection. A response that continues to this day. As one writer puts it, a lack of signs is not why people reject Jesus. Rather, people willfully reject him. The heart cannot see what it's not looking for. What's your heart looking for? Or not looking for, as the case may be. We have Moses and the prophets too. But we have more than that. We have the fulfilment of Moses and the prophets. The gospel of the the risen Jesus, the crucified, risen and ascended Jesus, that is our clarion call. Don't be deaf to it. See it and respond to it for what it is. A glorious testimony of forgiveness and restoration that gives our lives true meaning and true hope. The gospel is enough. God may have placed eternity in our hearts, as the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it, but as sinful creatures, we are drawn to living for today. And there is a discreet charm to that way of thinking. There's a certain comfort to that way of living, I can see But it's an imagined solace. Ultimately, it's an imagined solace because we live for today at our folly. I take solace in the knowledge that because God is a God of love and justice, he has lovingly done something about all injustice. My injustices, your injustices, all injustices. as the song we're about to sing says. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I pray that this is true of you. If not now, then soon, before it's too late. Take up the offer of the one life course. The opportunity to get to know Jesus, the person that God has revealed our saviour have the hope of eternity because if this is true then you have that hope then one day we will together enjoy a reality of perfect justice a great banquet filled with more people than we can possibly count filled with once lost sheep who have now been found and we will enjoy that reality not just for a day or for a time but for all time. Let's live in light of that eternity now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the revelation that you are. That is the eternal Son of Just God who the 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 can't
0: the yeah, And that. that you...